Well, if you have your Bible, uh, why don't you take that up with you and turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. And as you find your place there, uh, allow me to try and both pique your interest as well as hopefully segue us into the text uh, by asking you this question. If you could go back in time and eavesdrop on any one given episode in the life of the Lord Jesus, I wonder which one you'd pick. And of course, there's so many good and intriguing options, aren't there? For example, perhaps you'd stamp your ticket to the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine that? Uh, Sitting there on the grassy plain, looking up at Jesus, hearing him in live time preaching the most compelling, convicting, life-changing sermon this world has ever heard. I mean, that'd be totally transformative. Or maybe, maybe instead of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you'd go to Lazarus's tomb. Anybody joining me at Lazarus's tomb? How awesome would that be? To to be numbered among the bystanders as all of a sudden Jesus uh, arrives on the scene accompanied by the wailers and the funeral procession and the spectacle of that moment only for Christ to step up to the tomb and begin shouting out, Lazarus, come out. And of course, what happens? Well, well, out comes Lazarus and you get to be one of those guys or one of those gals waiting at the entrance of the tomb with, with, I don't know, a high five or a fist bump like Lazarus, you're back. You've been raised to life by the power of Christ. I mean, that'd be incredible. Or maybe, maybe some of you even presently at our church are in the process of being certified as as biblical counselors. And so you think to yourself, you know what, as awesome as the Sermon on the Mount might be, as wonderful as I'm sure Lazarus' tomb would also be, here's where I want to go. Take me to John chapter 4. Let me pull up a chair and watch the great counselor, Jesus himself, Walk the woman at the well from the sin of her heart, from the mess of her past to freedom in Christ. How, how cool would that be? That would be amazing. And, and so church, obviously there's no shortage of episodes for us to pick from. No, every moment of Jesus's life, as you know, uh, was full of intrigue. Every moment of Jesus's life was, was full of impactful engagements and, and meaningful interactions and transformative teachings. And so really, we can't go wrong here. But, but guys, here's why I intro with that this morning. Because as we turn our attention now to God's word, here's what I want us to do with the time that we have. I want us to eavesdrop, as it were, on a particular scene in Jesus's life. Now, admittedly, this scene is is probably not as familiar to us as the other examples I've given. I think the the reason for that, at least partially, is because in this particular episode, Jesus is all by himself. Or maybe I should say it would appear as if Jesus was all by himself. The episode is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, as I've said already. And it features Jesus uniquely in the act of private prayer. To put it into the more modern churchy vernacular, Mark chapter 1, verses 39 through, or 35 through 39, gives us a window into what I'm going to call the devotional life of Christ. And by devotional life, all I mean is this to Jesus' commitment to time spent alone with God. And so, church, that's where 
we're headed this morning. And as we do so, here's what I think our text is going to teach us by way of a big idea. And so if you're taking notes this morning, feel free to jot this down. If you've got your bulletin in hand, this should be in there for you already. But the big idea goes like this. Public faithfulness to Christ is dependent upon private communion with God. Let me say that one more time. Public faithfulness to Christ is dependent upon private communion with God. Can I pray for us and then I'll give you the outline and we'll begin working through the text. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the clarity of your word that we can even open it now in this place in freedom and as we read and interpret and imply this book, we are in, interacting and engaging with your very words. Lord, this is a sacred moment and it is a privilege to be before your word. I pray that our hearts would be quieted and stilled and humbled before it, that you would see fit to change us more into the likeness of our Savior through our time spent seeking the scriptures this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as far as structure goes, it's a simple three-point outline this morning. If that's helpful for you get, to get down, definitely do so. Uh, all we're going to be doing is, is walking through the text. And along the way, I'll just make three observations with you concerning Jesus' devotional life. Okay, three observations concerning Jesus' devotional life. And they go like this. First, we'll be observing the priority of Jesus' devotional life. Secondly, we'll be observing the environment of Jesus' devotional life. And then thirdly, we'll finish by observing the function of Jesus' devotional life. The priority, the environment, and the function of Jesus' devotional life. We begin first with the priority of Jesus' devotional life. Mark 1, 35 reads like this. And rising very early in the morning... While it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Well, church, it had certainly been a busy 24 hours for Jesus in the lead up to what we just read in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. How busy, you might ask? Well, according to verse 21, and you can see this if you just scan up with me on the page, we're told that Jesus' day began teaching in the synagogue. And this was a, a rather eventful day in the synagogue, and it was eventful on two accounts. Number one, because Jesus' teaching that day, at least according to the crowds who heard him, was completely countercultural. It was countercultural in this sense that Jesus taught them, just like he always did, as one who had, and, and you know it, authority, right? See, Jesus was unlike the rabbis of his day in that Jesus didn't need to, to cite his sources. Well, this rabbi said this, or this rabbi once said that, or this rabbi offers this piece of advice. No, Jesus, being God of very God, spoke for God on behalf of God with the authority of God. And this was obviously very, very unique in the day and age in which he lived. And so first, it was eventful because of Jesus' teaching, but secondly, it was also eventful because of Jesus' miraculous power, a miraculous power which would be showcased rather dramatically in the public exorcism of a demonically possessed individual. Verse 23 informs us that in the middle of Jesus' teaching, evidently in the middle of his ex exposition, 
Out of nowhere comes a man with, quote, an unclean spirit, Bible language for a man with a demon. And this demon begins declaring in the sight of all the messianic identity of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but, but that's a weird day in church. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm hoping for no demonic interruptions this morning, but such was the case here in Mark chapter one. And so what will Jesus do? Well, he wasn't having any of it. He wasn't done with his sermon. And so at once he turns to the man, he rebukes the spirit. Immediately out of the man comes the demon, at which point the crowd looks at one another with this response in verse 27. And I love this. What is this? That's, that's all they can get out. What is is this. Man, what in the world is going on here in Capernaum? First, we've got this authoritative rabbi, and that's weird enough. But now secondly, we've got this teacher who so much as speaks, and the demons respond in obedience. And so church, that's how Jesus' day began. But, but notice with me, that's not how it ends. Because from there, in, in verses 29 through 31, Jesus and his disciples We'll then walk over to Peter's house, same day, right after the synagogue, at which point Jesus will heal Peter's mother-in-law, who is incredibly sick with a fever. Now, obviously, this was long before the days of, of social media or uh, modern news outlets, but, but friends, nonetheless, it did not take long for news of this authoritative, demon-controlling, mother-in-law-healing Jesus to begin spreading far and wide in the city of Capernaum. And how do I know that? Well, I know that because there in verses 32 and 33, we're told that by sunset, quote, the entire city was gathered at the door. Imagine that for a moment. Like, you know what? I think I'll, I'll go outside, maybe get some fresh air. I don't know, run some errands, at which point you, you exit the home. Oh, there's the entire city of Kingsburg. Like that's how popular Jesus was. That's how in demand his ministry had become. And so the city gathers at the door. Verse 34, the, the sick are, are coming in droves. They're, they're being carried, I presume. And Jesus is healing them all. He's, he's ministering to them all. He's casting out their demons. And in all likelihood, this would have taken Christ late into the night. That There were so many people who needed to see Jesus. Now, now church, let's bring this all the way back. Why do I spend so much time belaboring the last 24 hours of Jesus's life from the synagogue to the healing at Peter's house to late night ministry in the city of Capernaum? Well, I do so because mere hours after that day, conservatively, some would say an 18 to 20 hour day, comes this statement in verse 35, and we've read it already. Look back there with me. And rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And so what does the context tell us about Jesus's devotional life, well, well, at the very least, it tells us where Jesus's priorities were. Amen? After all, how easy would it have been for Jesus to sleep in on that Sunday, coming off his manic Saturday? How easy would it have been for Jesus in the name of rest or uh, relaxation or as our culture likes to call it self-care uh, for Jesus to, to put off his spiritual disciplines for at least one day. But of course, that's the exact opposite of what he does. 
Instead, we're, we're told that, that Jesus rises very early in the morning, a uh, Greek construction referring to the last watch of the night, which spanned from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., in this case, likely closer to 3 a.m. in light of Mark's editorial footnote that it was what? It was still dark, and yet there Jesus was. Exhausted as he must have been in his humanity, wearied as he undoubtedly was from the pressures and the weight and the burden placed on him as Messiah, nevertheless rising before the disciples, rising before the crowds, rising before the sun itself. For what purpose? Well, for the purpose of being with God. And and church, I wonder if we have a, a category in our theology for this Jesus You see, often, and rightfully so, I think we're both prone and eager to hold Jesus up as an example in his public ministry. I'm thinking about his his preaching. I'm thinking about his his miracle working. I'm thinking about his his counseling and and his discipleship and his evangelism, as we should. But, But friends, when was the last time we drew strength and encouragement from the example of Christ, listen, in the secret place? from the example of Jesus, away from the crowds, away from the fanfare, away from the watching eye of this world, on his knees before the Father, seeking the face of God. Friend, is that a Jesus you know? And maybe I should ask this question applicationally. Is that a Jesus you imitate? Are we, like our Savior, faithful in prayer? You see, one of the great lies that is busted in this text by the example of Christ is that our lack of faithfulness in private is simply a matter of what? Of busyness, right? And yet how often do we believe that lie in order to vindicate our conscience? So we'll talk ourselves into believing things like this. When the kids get a little bit older, then I'll be more consistent in my devotional life. Or maybe when the degree gets finished, then then I'll have more time to work on my soul. Or or perhaps when the business grows and I'm able to hire out and and take some more time off, then I'll really dig down and and I'll spend some time in prayer. I'll I'll spend some time in the word. I'll, I'll spend some time in communion with God. But of course, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that the example Jesus gives us to follow is not faithfulness in private when faithfulness Faithfulness in private is convenient, but faithfulness in private born out of a heart that is totally dependent upon God. And church, isn't that one of the most indicting things about this text? The reality that Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, was driven to prayer. Why? Because he knew that he needed it. Because he knew that that apart from the Father supernaturally empowering his ministry, there would be no fruit at all. And friend, if that be true of Christ, oh, how much more must that be true of you and I as well. And now here's why this is so significant for us to consider this morning. Because mark it down, put it in ink, this next week our flesh is going to lie to us and it's going to sound like this, that you're far too busy for your Bible. Why don't you take a day off? Or you've got far too much going on for prayer. Why don't you sit this one out? Or maybe you've got this, that, and the other breathing down your neck. You couldn't possibly spend time with the Lord. And listen, we could believe that lie, but it would be a misdiagnosis because in reality, on most days, we're not far too busy for the Lord. No, we're far too self-sufficient for the Lord. Isn't that true? And truth be told, what we need is not more time. What we need is, is not an open calendar. What we need is, is not a vacation. No, what we need desperately 
is a greater awareness of John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Brothers and sisters, prayerlessness is not a symptom of busyness. Prayerlessness is a symptom of pride. The lie believed, however subconscious it might be, that we could do something for God apart from focused, given time to communion with God. Amen? Secondly, secondly, the second observation that we should make of Jesus' devotional life coming out of Mark chapter one is this. It's the environment of Jesus' devotional life. The environment of Jesus' devotional life. Let me draw your attention with me back to verse 35. And there in verse 35, notice with me that Mark gives us not only the when of Jesus' devotional life, it was very early in the morning, but, but secondly, we're also given the where of Jesus' devotional life. And so look back in your Bible, it says this, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Now, interestingly, that word desolate place is actually the exact same word used earlier in Mark chapter one uh, to speak of the location of Jesus's wilderness temptation by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, a location which the other gospel writers will tell us was rather barren and really incredibly isolated. And so the question quickly becomes, well, well Jesus of all places for a quiet time, why here, right? Uh, was, there, was there something wrong with Peter's home? Was they're really nowhere within the city of Capernaum that, that Jesus could have stolen away to and uh, cozied up next to a fire and, and spent some time in prayer. Well, apparently if there was, uh, then Jesus wasn't interested. But because what does he do? Well, again, he, he rises from his sleep. He, he then conscientiously tiptoes around the disciples, makes for the door, leaves the home, and, and then heads for the wilderness. Now, let me ask you this question. Why does Mark include that detail in his gospel record? Right, like, why not just, just spare the ink altogether and simply say Jesus prayed? Well, well, church, I think there's at least three reasons why that might be. And so let me phrase them to you like this. I think there's three very practical implications that we can draw even from the environment of Jesus' devotional life. And the first would be this, that Jesus had a plan. Jesus had a plan, super simple, but, but don't miss this. You see, the reality is it is incredibly unlikely. And I would even go so far as to say it would be wrong to conclude that again, coming off the heels of an 18 to 20 hour day, Jesus uh, just so happened by a random sequence of events to, to rise near 3 a.m. And in rising near 3 a.m., Jesus just so happened to, to go for a walk in the early morning hours. And in going for a walk in the early morning hours, Jesus just so happened to, to wind up in the wilderness. And in winding up in the wilderness, Jesus just so happened to stop and pray. No, the far better conclusion would be this, that long before his time spent in prayer, Jesus had every intention of being where he was and doing what he did. The, the principle is, is this simple. Jesus made prayer a priority in his life by planning to pray. But by planning to pray, let me phrase it a slightly different way. Jesus' devotional life was anything but spontaneous. 
Jesus' devotional life was, was not off the cuff, uh, fly by the seat of my pants. Well, well, maybe I'll get some time with God tomorrow morning. No, for Jesus, his time with the Father was protected and preserved again by a predetermined plan. That comes Sunday morning at dawn, he was going to be in the wilderness. He was going to be with God. Jesus had an appointment with the Father that he would not miss. Church family, what about us? Do we have a plan when it comes to our devotional lives? And I think this is incredibly practical. You say, well, James, I want to be faithful in my devotional life like my Savior. I want to be faithful in prayer. I want to be faithful in the Word. I want to be a man or a woman who's marked by time alone with God. And I would just say, praise the Lord. That is a wonderful ambition. Now let me ask you, how are you gonna do that? How are you gonna do that, brother or sister? What, what time are you waking up tomorrow morning in order to make that happen? What cup of coffee is gonna be prepped and, and ready to go so that that time with God is both fruitful and enjoyable? What assignments need to be finished tonight and, and put away so that tomorrow morning's communion with God truly is communion with God, to which some might say, well, uh, that doesn't sound very spiritual. And friend, I think that's part of the problem. You, you see, often uh, I think that what we'll do, myself included, to the detriment of our soul, is what will treat our devotional lives in a way that is categorically different from how we treat every other commitment in our life. How so? Well, in the name of spirituality, in the name of, of not wanting to check the box, our spiritual disciplines become negotiable, don't they? They become almost like up for grabs depending on, on our season of life or, or the mood we're in or the week we've had. And so there's all these outside variables that might lead to, to the downfall of our quiet time. Meanwhile, I would never treat my work like that, my, my nutrition like that, even my recreation like that. No, if there's something that, that demands my attention, I'll do it regardless of whether it's convenient and, or not or regardless of whether it's something I want to do in the moment or not. And church, along that same vein, one of the questions I've been asking my own heart this past week, and maybe it's helpful and appropriate for yours as well, is this. Why am I far more comfortable canceling with God than canceling with my employer? Why am I far more protective at times of sleep, school, and sports than of the upkeep of my soul via a thriving devotional life? Friends, these things ought not be so. Amen. No, if, if anything's gonna go, let the club sport go. If anything's gonna go, let, let the 90% exam grade go. Let whatever it might be go, but let time with God be sacred and fought for. Yes, the very lifeline of our spiritual lives. But here's the second implication coming out of the environment of Jesus' devotional life. First, it implies that Jesus had a plan, but secondly, it also implies, and it's so clear, it almost doesn't need to be said, that Jesus sought out solitude. A little bit of a tongue twister there. Say that five times fast. Jesus sought out solitude. In church, there's, there's really not much more to it than just that. No, Jesus recognized, as all of us should, that the environment of his devotional life actually mattered when it came to the fruitfulness of that time. And this was a, a consistent example set by Jesus. In fact, I was intrigued to learn this past week 
that, that every single time Jesus is found in the act of prayer in Mark's gospel, he's praying just like here in a desolate place every single time. Now, certainly, that, that doesn't mean that we can't seek the Lord in, in crowded, uh, noisy, loud places. No, I think we can and we should, but, but I think it does mean that, that by and large, as a rule, so much as it depends upon us, our standard, our, our commonplace when it comes to our devotional life should be to seek the Lord in the most distraction-free environment possible. Now, listen, I, I recognize even this morning as I see that, that almost sounds like the no-duh statement of the year, doesn't it? Well, of course, we should seek the Lord in the most distraction-free environment. But guys, I think it's important for us to at least verbalize that this morning and take notice of the example of Christ in this area for at least this reason. Because if you're anything like me, a 21st century American living in the year 2023, then maybe you've noticed that we corporately and collectively are growing more and more allergic to both the place and the moment of solitude. Can we agree on that? I mean, we are losing our ability as a society at a rapid rate to be alone. And, and why is that? Well, here's my take on it. Because in the technological age in which we live, aloneness is painted as the enemy of productivity and the source of relational satisfaction, dissatisfaction rather. And this is why our, our high school students nationally will spend over eight plus hours a day on their phones. This is why the, the adults in the room aren't too far behind because again, aloneness has become a problem to be solved rather than a place to be sought. And, and friends, if we don't think that's affecting our devotional lives, I, I think we should think again. And, and like our savior, we should be extra diligent. We must go the extra mile in order to create margin in our lives, to create opportunities in our days, away from the notifications, away from the distractions, away from uh, the flicker of our phones and the demands of this world, whereby we can simply be with God in a way that produces real and lasting change. And then thirdly, by way of implication in verse 35, Jesus had a plan that's first, Jesus sought out solitude, that's second, but now thirdly, Jesus prayed for an audience of one. Jesus prayed for an audience of one. In other words, Jesus' devotional life was without pride and without pretense. In just a moment, we're gonna learn that at some point on this early morning Sunday, uh, Jesus' disciples will in fact rise. And uh, when they do, almost comedically, uh, they will have no idea where Jesus went. Now, when we get there, we're going to diagnose the disciples' response and in light of their response, what it has to say about them and what it has to say about Jesus. But, but church, for our purposes here, suffice it to say that Jesus' devotional life, check this out, was entirely unannounced, was it not? Which is to say that, that Jesus was totally unconcerned that neither the disciples nor the crowds nor anyone else for that matter had any clue at all about what it was he was doing. We might say it like this, Jesus got alone with God for God, not the approval of man. In church, as much as we might hate to admit it, in all likelihood, we must confess that there have been moments this past year, there have been moments perhaps this past month, there have been moments maybe even this past week where we have been tempted 
to draw near to the Father for reasons beside the Father. Are we not guilty of this? For the students in the room, perhaps we've gotten alone with God because we knew that that mom and dad were gonna come asking. And when they do, we better have something to say. For the adults in the room, perhaps we've gotten alone with God but because we knew that, that at Grace Group or at SLT or just in conversation with other believers, our spiritual disciplines uh, were gonna come up. And so, man, I, I better get some time with God this week so that when they do, I can say, yes, I've been with God. For the pastoral staff in the room and the seminarians and, and the ministry leaders, perhaps we've gotten alone with God because there was a sermon to be preached or there was an assignment to be completed or there was a meeting to be led. Perhaps we've gotten alone with God for reasons other than God himself. Brothers and sisters, we must repent of such practices and remember that God wants not just our mouths in prayer. No, God wants our what? He wants our hearts in prayer that the Lord cares very much so about the motivation underlying every single one of our devotional lives. And once again, Jesus is our supreme example in all things, and Jesus is our supreme example on this point here. Well, let me take you now, thirdly, from the environment of Jesus' devotional life to the function of Jesus' devotional life the function of Jesus' devotional life, specifically pursuing this question, for what purpose did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus pray? Now let me just say this up front, biblically speaking, uh, there are, are lots of different answers to that question. Well, well, Jesus prayed for God to be glorified. Yes, he did. Or Jesus prayed for saints to be sanctified. Absolutely. Or Jesus prayed for, for sinners to be saved. And I would say yes and amen. And so my goal here is not to provide an exhaustive list, but, but rather just to give you two. Two reasons, two functions here in Mark chapter one for why Jesus prayed. And I'll give them to you on the front end. Jesus prayed for direction and preservation in life and ministry. There in verse 36, we're told that Jesus' time alone with God will be interrupted. And it will be interrupted most notably by Peter in verse 37, but according to uh, the grammar and the syntax of this verse, it's gonna be interrupted not just by the disciples, but in all likelihood by a large sum of people uh, in the city of Capernaum. And likely what had happened is that the same group who showed up at Peter's house the night prior had returned again this morning at sunrise in order to see Jesus do something else. They witnessed him heal last night, and now I'm sure they're wondering, well, what's this Jesus going to do today? And so sure enough, they show up at the door, knock, 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 we're here to see Jesus, at which point the disciples, if they hadn't realized already, well, they knew now for sure that they had what? They had lost Jesus. And I can only imagine what that scene would have looked like as, as Peter uh, turns to John. John, have, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Turns to Andrew. Andrew, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Bartholomew, have you seen Jesus? Jesus, I just woke up. Where's Jesus? And what ensues in verses 36 and 37 is a spirited search for Christ. In fact, the word for search in 36, it's actually the same word which would have been used for government officials hunting down criminals. Uh, this was an all-out blitz. Find missing Jesus ASAP. And maybe some of you moms out there are familiar with such searches. Perhaps you've been to the grocery store before and everything was going well. Everything was going according to plan until you wind up 
uh, maybe in the poultry section, at which point you look behind you. And where there was once five little children, there are now four little children. Where's missing Johnny? So you turn the store upside down. You're looking up every aisle. You're asking every employee. You're looking under every nook and cranny in the store to find missing Johnny. And this was the disciples. They were on Jesus's trail. And finally, in verse 37, they find him. And Peter, you got to love him, being the verbal processor that he was, blurts out in the presence of Jesus, quote, everyone is looking for you. Now, there's a a way to read that statement and believe the best about Peter. Well, he was a a concerned friend or or he was a caring disciple. But, But church, that would actually be the wrong way to read this statement because in truth, this was not the greeting of a concerned friend. This was a subtle rebuke. Jesus, what are you doing out here is the thought. Jesus, of of all the places you could have been this morning, why did you make us find you way out here in the wilderness? And, And friends, therein lies the conflicting, competing priorities of Jesus the Lord and Peter the disciple. You see, for Peter, Jesus had far too much going on to be spending time in prayer. But but for Jesus, he had far too much going on not to be spending time in prayer, right? For, for Peter, prayer was, was a hindrance to Jesus' ministry, causing him to neglect the far more weighty matters. But, but for Jesus, prayer was the very sustenance of his ministry. It was the sure foundation upon which everything else was built. Jesus drew strength in prayer. Jesus found courage in prayer. Jesus was given wisdom and guidance and direction in prayer. And I think this is made clear in verse 36. And there, right after Jesus almost dismisses Peter's statement, he goes on to to tell his men, listen, we've got to go. And so pack your stuff, gather your belongings. We're we're going up north to Galilee. I've got to preach there also. But now here's the timeless principle. When did that clear calling come? In other words, when did Jesus find both the strength and the clarity to obediently pursue what's next? Well, it came in this text immediately after his time spent in prayer. And this was nothing new for Jesus. No, in in Luke chapter six, Jesus would spend all morning in prayer seeking the Father's guidance just hours before the selection of his 12 disciples. In John chapter 17, Jesus would spend all night in prayer seeking the Father's will just hours before the cross. And now here in, in Mark chapter one, Jesus will spend all morning in prayer seeking the Father's direction for where he would have him go and what he would have him do. And brothers and sisters, I think each of those examples should provoke the question within us, am I, like Christ, dependent upon the Father for direction and preservation in my present circumstances? And I'll just be honest with you this morning. This was the hardest part of the sermon for me to write. Because I was forced to wrestle with just how flippantly I can throw around phrases like this. Well, I should pray about that or let me pray about this. But, but then what follows all too often is a touch and go prayer featuring little amounts of endurance or perseverance proving that I've already made up my mind on what I'm going to do. But, but just before I move forward, let me check in with God just in case. Anybody else guilty? 
This is often how we treat prayer. Lord, this is my course. Lord, this is my direction. And so God, if you want to mess with my plan in any way, just let me know. But because otherwise I'm moving forward. Brothers and sisters, this is backwards of how it should be. In essence, we should seek the Lord in prayer, allowing our prayer life to inform our decision-making rather than than coming to a decision and then imposing that decision upon the Lord. Did you see the difference between the two? One is a dependent spirit in prayer. God, give me wisdom. Give me direction. Make my way clear. While the other, though prayerful in a sense, is nonetheless independent. Well, I've prayed about that or I've sought God's will and so I can now move forward. I think the question we should be asking is this. Did we really pray about that? And like our Lord, was there a focused, prolonged time spent in prayer that then governed the the direction of our decision? Maybe it'll stick if I say it like this. Do we come to God with our decisions or instead do we allow God to inform our decisions? And again, if, if you're anything like me, well, then this is certainly an area in which we can grow. We can grow in our dependence upon the Lord as we seek his guidance through the act of prayer. But just before we close, I would be remiss if I did not at least bring to our attention a pretty significant detail contained within this passage as it relates to the purpose of Jesus's ministry. And I was thinking about this. I think this is maybe an especially important point given the season that we're in. Uh, We are eight days away from Christmas morning. And so with that, we are very much in Christmas mode. Uh, Every mall is playing songs about Jesus. There's references to Christ in windows and on lawns and in places where, quite frankly, uh, we would never expect to find Jesus's name. And yet there he is in December. And so everyone seems to be talking about the reality of Jesus's birth, but, but of course far less are truly considering the reason or the purpose for which this baby was born. And so if you would look back down with me to the passage, look down to verse 38 and listen closely with me for Jesus' self-disclosure of why it is he came. It says there, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee doing what? Preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, now why is this significant? Well, it's significant because we desperately need to allow Jesus, not ourselves, to define his ministry. I think I'm, I'm passionate about this because there is a growing confusion even within the church on this exact issue. For example, the social justice gospel claims that the purpose of Jesus's ministry was to right every wrong horizontally this side of eternity. Or what about the the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Well, they claim that the purpose of Jesus' ministry was to deepen our pockets, grow our homes, and eliminate our suffering. Or consider the the mystical uh, New Age 21st century gospel. Well, they claim that the purpose of Jesus' ministry was to give us an enlightened spirituality. Uh, obtained through, through meditation and, and mindfulness and discipline. But friend, you don't need me to tell you that all such gospels of which there are hundreds more have woefully missed the mark. Because here in, in Mark chapter one, Jesus will tell us that the reason for which he came was what? To preach the gospel. I love the way Steve Lawson puts it. He said, God had one son and he made him a preacher. Not a sociologist, not a wealth consultant, not a spiritual advisor, but a preacher. Because listen, in the eyes of God, and this is so important, 
the single greatest problem facing humanity is a what? Is a sin problem. And this is what Jesus' heavy, heavy emphasis placed upon the act of preaching all throughout his ministry evidences to us. I mean, think about this with me. Jesus could have came and done any number of things, right? Like he, he could have overturned Roman government and rewritten every act of legislation, but he didn't. Or he could have cured the world of, of hunger and disease and, and every temporary malady, but he didn't. Or he could have given us some, some moral code, just be good to one another, seek peace with one another, but he didn't do any of those things. Why? Because Jesus knew what I pray every single one of us in this room knows as well, and it's this, that to have our every physical need met, and yet to be ignorant or disbelieving of the gospel message is to be dead in our sin and headed for an impending judgment under the righteous wrath of God. And so this morning, as we consider the devotional life, of Christ as we consider the private ministry of Jesus at the very same time and we never lose sight of the grand purpose for which he came and, and maybe some of us need to respond to that purpose this morning. Maybe some of us are, are here and, and we're, we're going through the motions, we're, we're playing the part, but, but we know deep down in our heart of hearts that we have not yet believed upon faith in Jesus' gospel. Man, if, if that's you, I wanna call you to that this morning. If you've got questions about what that looks like, well, then find somebody around you. If you can't find somebody around you, come up to the front. We'll have people here who can help you with that. But, but friend, it's imperative that you know you need to respond to the gospel this morning and be saved. And that is the message of Christmas, is it not? That God the Father sent his one and only son for what purpose? We have to get to the why. To save a sinful humanity from their sin by the power of the gospel. May that keep us worshiping these next eight days.